really excited to have Justin Farmer preach today. He's a recent graduate of Duke Divinity's THM program. Um, and uh, many of you have benefited from his friendship and his um, uh, wisdom, especially around uh, uh, the Bible and the Old Testament. Uh, he sent me his, his um, thesis, and I've been working my way through it um, around uh, wisdom literature, and it's just uh, it's a beautiful uh, thing to see uh, all the work that he has done and uh, the ways that the Lord is using him um, in this community and in many other places. So uh, without further ado, I'll invite Jessica to read and, and uh, Justin will lead us as we continue on in the lectionary readings in Matthew. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, Treat them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. I assure you that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, I assure you that if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, then my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Thanks, Jess. Jess is in the other room and we're currently separated because our dog has the tendency to find her squeaky toy in the middle of church on a regular basis. So uh, trying to minimize the squeaking in my preaching today. Um, true to my academic training, before I get into what I really have to say this morning, I'd like to begin with some acknowledgements. Uh, first, I want to thank all of you Oak Folk for so graciously welcoming me and Jess into your community. We haven't been here for a long time, but it's evident through our experience that hope, healing, and hospitality aren't just buzzwords on the front page of the church website, but practices deeply rooted in the life of this community. I'm grateful for all of you and honored to preach to you this morning. Thanks also to Chris for this opportunity. I'm really grateful for your trust in asking me to preach and your encouragement as I prepared this week. My final acknowledgement is more of an apology than a thank you. Uh, as a recent Duke Divinity grad, I haven't been gone long enough to be removed from the student email list yet. So I was looking through the weekly chapel schedule that gets sent to all Divinity students and I noticed that the legendary Will Willimon preached from this same text in chapel on Wednesday. So to all my friends who are current students at the Duke Divinity School, I'm sorry that this will only be the second best sermon on Matthew 18, 15 to 20 you've heard this week, assuming you went to chapel. Those of you that have had the joy of leading a godly play lesson with Oak Kids will be familiar with the wondering questions that mark the end of each lesson. For me, this practice of wondering at and about scripture has spilled over into my own personal reading of biblical texts. As I prepared this sermon, I couldn't help but wonder about a couple things in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. 
and I thought that my wonderings might provide a helpful structure for this morning's sermon. So first, I wonder what it means to be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector. Admittedly, I've spent most of my Christian walk thinking of Matthew 18, 15 to 17 as a blueprint for how to excommunicate someone from the church. And I'm not alone in this either. Most of the commentaries I consulted in preparation for today arrive at pretty much the same conclusion. Every pastoral theology class I took uh, over the course of my theological education taught me essentially the same thing too. That if you have to excommunicate someone from your community, this, these verses provide the policy that you should follow. So taken at face value, Jesus seems to be presenting his disciples with a systematic process for the unfortunate business of removing an unrepentant sinner from Christian community. As Jessica read, step one involves a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. If that doesn't work, you move on to step two, which involves gathering up other folks to join in the confrontation. And if that still doesn't work, the person in the wrong has one last chance to listen to the correction of the church. If they still don't listen, they can be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, like those who are outside of the community. These people were typically despised in Jesus' day. I'm reminded of Jesus' harsh words to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, who he refers to as a dog. While not as severe as calling someone a dog, these words in Matthew 18 apparently carry a similarly dismissive tone that we might not expect from Jesus. If you've tried, just treat them like Gentiles or tax collectors. When I read this text slowly, I wonder, how can this be good news? In verse 16, Jesus alludes pretty clearly to the last few verses of Deuteronomy 19. These verses contain the Old Testament instructions on dealing with interpersonal conflict. Deuteronomy 19 reads much the same way as Matthew 18. Both are three-step processes that uh, progress from one-on-one -on -one confrontation to two or three-on-one confrontation to confrontation in front of the entire community. But step three of the Deuteronomy process is a little bit different than Matthew 18. In Deuteronomy, the final step of interpersonal conflict resolution is community-sanctioned retribution. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. So we might say that Jesus' solution to interpersonal conflict in Matthew 18 is a bit kinder than the one imagined in Deuteronomy. Sure, those who are excommunicated may not be able to participate in the life of the community anymore, but hey, at least they're still breathing and all of their body parts are accounted for. 
But while this reading of Matthew 18 is maybe a little less gruesome than Deuteronomy 19, it still doesn't sound like good news to me. Grant Wacker is an emeritus professor of American religious history at Duke, and he wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post this week about the scandal surrounding Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. The article was entitled, Jerry Falwell Jr.'s Downfall Won't Change Anything for Evangelicals. I don't bring up this article to disparage Falwell or rehash his failures, but because in the article, Wacker makes an interesting claim about the nature of the evangelical church. Most evangelicals, Wacker claims, won't remember or care about Falwell's, Falwell's transgressions in a year because they'll likely find some way to distance themselves from Falwell, to situate Falwell outside the bounds of their community. They'll say, he may claim to be a Christian, but he's not really one of us. If Falwell is treated like a Gentile or tax collector, no longer a part of the real community, then his negative actions and their consequences don't really have to be forgiven, they can just be forgotten. I have to believe that Jesus had more in mind in Matthew 18 than this sort of rearranging of communal boundaries every time there was a seemingly irresolvable interpersonal conflict in the church. That seems a bit out of character for Jesus, the same Jesus who used his final breaths to forgive the very people who nailed him to the cross. If there was ever an insurmountable interpersonal conflict, uh, it's gruesome execution, I think. So maybe instead of providing a blueprint for excommunication, Jesus' command to treat those who have sinned like Gentiles and tax collectors is an invitation to his disciples and to us to extend the same radical, common-sense-defying forgiveness they'd seen Jesus extend at the tables of so many Gentiles and tax collectors who found healing and inclusion in the hospitality and forgiveness of Jesus. I think of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 again. This was a tense interaction, but at the end of the day, the woman's daughter was healed and Jesus praised her for her great faith. I think also of Matthew himself, the tax collector turned disciple who was directly called out of the tax booth to follow Jesus. To be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector for these two was to be lovingly welcomed into community through Jesus' offer of hope, healing, and hospitality. It was to experience the love of God, which overpowered the ethnic boundaries between Jews and Gentiles and the socio-cultural boundaries between tax collectors and the subjects of the Roman Empire. This reading of Matthew 18 sounds more like good news to me. And it makes more sense to some of the surrounding verses as well. Just a couple of verses after Jesus' instruction on handling interpersonal conflict, Peter asked Jesus 
Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as seven times? Jesus replies, not just seven times, but rather as many as 70 times seven. This is a bit different than the step-by-step process we hear in verses 15 through 17. So if our attitude towards forgiveness of our brothers and sisters has the same rules as baseball, three strikes and you're out, we might need to consider whether we're truly treating our brothers and sisters like Gentiles and tax collectors, at least in the way Jesus did. My next wonder question has to do with the other three verses in today's text, verses 18 to 20. And honestly, I wonder why Matthew included these verses here. If you were to write each verse of Matthew 18 on a separate piece of paper, and then ask me to put those pieces of paper in order and reassemble the chapter, I think I'd probably put verses 18 to 20 in the wrong place every time. I'd certainly have second thoughts about placing these three verses after verses 15 to 17. At first glance, these two sets of verses couldn't be more different. The first trio is apparently a concrete set of instructions for dealing with the inevitable conflict that arises from existing in a group. The second is a seemingly mystical, supernatural faith claim concerned with heavenly binding and loosing, agreement in prayer, and the presence of Jesus. One involves the boring, mundane, everyday work of navigating interpersonal issues, and the other is concerned with the stuff of heaven. What does one have to do with the other? I think it might be helpful here if we take a moment to talk about food. A few years ago, I wrote a master's thesis on Jesus' practice of dining with sinners and tax collectors. As part of my research, I spent a lot of time reading about ancient Greco-Roman dining practices. I learned that a typical meal in Jesus' day occurred in two movements, and that it was the host's job to signal the start of each of these movements. The first movement was the meal proper, which the host initiated by taking bread, offering a blessing, and distributing it to guests. This practice marked the beginning of the meal because silverware wasn't commonplace in the first century, so bread was both food and utensil. The second movement, the symposium or the drinking party, was kicked off when the host stood up with the first cup of wine, offered a blessing, and passed it around to guests. If this all sounds sort of familiar, it should, because we retell a similar story every week when we take communion, that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus shared a Passover feast with his disciples. And like any good host of any meal in his time, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. And then after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. He passed it around and said, take and drink. 
I think it's so fascinating that at this Passover meal, a meal that overflows with rich religious imagery. I don't know if any of you have ever participated in a Passover Seder, but there are so many things on the table that arguably have more religious significance than bread and wine that would have been at every meal. So, so at this meal filled with rich religious imagery, Jesus chose the most boring things on the table to symbolize his kingdom. He could have easily gotten the same message across with the Passover lamb that was being served. Instead, he chose the commonplace, the ordinary, the things he knew would be on the table every day. I can't help but think of communion when I read Matthew 18. The mundane, exhausting, and messy work of conflict resolution in verses 15 to 17 is wrapped up in the heavenly work of answered prayers and the glorious promise of Christ's presence in verses 18 to 20. The seemingly small day in and day out work of forgiving those who sinned against us actually extends beyond the day today, echoing through eternity on earth as it is in heaven. The good news of Matthew 18 then is that we don't have to do this work alone. It might be easier to notice God with us in the more exciting moments of life, like in Peter's confession of Matthew 16 or the mountaintop transfiguration of Matthew 17. But in Matthew 18, Christ promises to be just as present with us as we toil in these difficult, everyday, mustard seed moments of conflict resolution. So, as we go out into the world this week, let's try to treat people like Gentiles and tax collectors not casting them out or treating them as other, but extending hope, healing, and hospitality to them. This is difficult work, but I know that we can do it because Christ has promised to be with us in the midst of it. In closing, I'd like to offer this prayer from a church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just down the road from Kenosha, where the act of bearing witness to Jesus' gospel of radical forgiveness is especially urgent and challenging at the moment. Will you pray with me? Perseverant God, through countless ages, you have persisted in love. Even when we nailed your son to the tree of our sins and cast him out of your garden, you did not give up on us. You continue to persevere in loving us, and you outlast our hard and stubborn hearts. May we too have the perseverance to keep going, to keep loving, to keep sowing peace. Let our persistence outlast the birds and rocks and hardened soil until life breaks through. 
May we never give up dedicating our strength to others as you so dedicated your strength to us. And let us persist in grace and peace and love until these virtues flourish in abundance. Amen.